You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Anti-malware and phishing protection mechanisms won't help when you're dealing with the compromise of one party in the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, we've got my interview with Avi Solomon. He is the Director of Information Technology for a law firm in Orlando, Florida. You and I met him at K before Con. He came up to us and he said, I've got a story your audience needs to hear. Okay. He told us the story and I said, yep, you're right. Our audience needs to hear that story. So <laughs> he's going to share that story later in the show. And we are back. Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, I wanted to take a moment of shameless self-promotion. Yes. And talk about uh, <laughs> The Cyberwire, which, uh, of course, is a daily podcast that I host that is cybersecurity-focused. It's daily news from the cybersecurity front. That is correct. Yep. And uh, I think many of our listeners here may not either know about The Cyberwire or may not have checked it out. So I right. wanted to uh, recommend that they do. You listen every day, I, right? I do. I listen every day because it's a great summary of all the events that have happened in the past 24 hours. We do recommend that folks please check out the CyberWire. We also have a show called Research Saturday, which posts, wait for it, Saturday. Right. And that's when we have interviews with folks who are out there doing research that is also cybersecurity. That's related. an in-depth look at their at their research. And yeah. You interview the the actual researchers. That's also a good show. Yeah. Well, thank you. So please do check it out. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, let's move on to our stories. My story this week comes from the BBC, mm-hmm. and this is titled Dating App Scammers Spotted by AI, Artificial Intelligence. And this is about a group of computer scientists. They published some research. One of those computer scientists is Awais Rashid, who's a regular over on the CyberWire. He's uh-huh. one of our uh, partners. He's from University of Bristol. So what they did was they threw artificial intelligence at this problem of dating sites. Mm -hmm. And can you tell if a dating profile is real or not by using artificial intelligence to kind of analyze the profile on the dating site and see whether or not it is legit. I have the research here in front of me, and some of the things they looked at, for example, they looked at occupation by gender, Mm -hmm. comparing known real profiles to known fake profiles. Right. And some of these won't be surprising to regular listeners of our show. On the male profiles, the real profiles most of the time either listed themselves as either other or Mm self-employed. The scam profiles, what do you think number one was? Military person? Ding, 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 ah, ding, ding, ding. Correct. Correct. Military. <laughs> Some Num- kind of military role. <laughs> yes. Number one was military. Number two was engineer. Number one for the scams for female profiles was student. Really? Mm-hmm. Other stuff they looked into was the use of fake images. There's a lot of stuff in here about them taking real images and either altering them in some way, putting a different face on the image, or just using stock photos. Right. So what they got at here in this research is that they could use image recognition to compare the profile images. And do a reverse image search. 
Exactly. And see if they could easily find out whether, for example, it was a stock image. That's a dead giveaway that this right. is not a <laughs> this is not a real person. Other things they looked at was if the IP address contradicts the location of right. where they say they're from. They were able to use natural language processing to figure out if the post used suspicious language use. Broken English or such? Yep. So lots of different things that they looked at. And they found that they could, with high reliability, I don't have the exact percentage here, but high reliability, they could tell whether or not an account was fake. And I think this is really interesting because I can imagine, wouldn't it be nice if some of the dating sites, when you looked at a profile, it would list, it would say, you know, we this, think this is fake. Right. Now, I guess it would be even nicer if they thought it was fake. They just simply removed it. Yeah, that would be better. Right. <laughs> yeah, that would be but, the thing to do. Uh, but I wonder how much of that is against their self-interest. Yeah, because are these scam accounts paying for a membership? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And and the more accounts they have on the system. The better off their bottom line is. Mm -hmm. makes, it makes the system more interesting. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. We'll see if any of this gets integrated into uh, the dating sites, either publicly or behind the scenes. But I think it's encouraging that they're able to throw this technology at this. I find it interesting it that the number one or number two, rather, fake occupation is engineer. I mean, to that point, the engineer does come up in the real profiles as okay. the third most popular. Ah, but okay. it's it's only one third as common as it is in the scam ones. So in the scam ones, it's three times more common. Correct. So th that's that's like a, a flag for them to say, let's pay closer attention to this mm -hmm, guy. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that they're doing this is not just one thing. It's a combination sure. of the oh, things. Oh, no, it's absolutely a combination of things. Yeah. Right. And, absolutely. Uh, and that's how they get such a high degree of reliability yep. in, in guessing. Yep. So, yeah, interesting story. We'll have a link to both the BBC's coverage of this and the original research if you want to dig in and, and really see what they're doing here. So, yep. uh, yeah, I, I like it. Good news story this week for me. It is a good news story. What do you have for us, Joe? Dave, this week I have something that might work on me. We've been saying throughout all our time on this podcast that there is something that will work on you. Here's another one that okay. might work on me. You get an email message in your system, and it reads, messages are pending to be delivered to mailbox since some date due to validation error. You have below emails pending to be released kindly, review, allow, or deny. And then it has a list of emails underneath of it, and each one is followed by a link to release, allow, or deny. Now, if you click on the link, what happens is you're taken to a fake login page for Office 365 for Outlook, and it's just a credential harvesting site. Right. And that's essentially what it is. What I find particularly interesting about this is that this is mimicking some kind of system that's telling you. Now, this one's not really good. I'll say that off the bat. But I do get emails like this from my employer that mm -hmm. say, this email has been flagged as spam. Please log in to handle it. What happens to me nowadays is I just ignore them because I think the spam filter is so good that it probably is spam. And I look at the subject lines coming through and the senders, and I don't know any of these people, so I just ignore them and let the spam system take care of it. But if someone were to send me a fake spam filter email that I looked at and it had a from address of someone I knew and a subject of something I cared about, I might go and click and release that hmm. because I might want to see that. And then if it asks me to log in, 
I would view that as a red flag, but I don't know that I would catch it 100%. What about the URL of the login? Are they doing anything to hide that when they're trying to get you to log into Outlook? On this particular campaign, it's not very good because they're using a hacked server. Oh, uh, I see. On other campaigns, they're using like Azure services. So it looks kind of like a Microsoft environment. Oh, Right. So it's plausible. Right. This is an article from Bleeping Computer, and they have all the information. We could put the link in the show notes. The actual sample comes from Michael Gillespie, who sent it to them, hmm. who showed it to him. So Michael's paying attention and sends that to Bleeping Computer so they can talk about it. And then we talk about it here so everyone, all of our listeners can hear it. So what's the red flag to, to look out for here? How do I, uh, what's the giveaway? The giveaway on this particular campaign with this sample is the language. The language is broken. Does your company have something that filters out emails or, or something? This is actually not even claiming to be a, a spam filter. It's saying that there's some kind of problem with the email. That generally doesn't happen. But if you're not technical, you wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. Right. You wouldn't know that's not how email works. Mm-hmm. You know, an email is either delivered or not delivered. If you're the recipient of the email and somebody malforms an email to send to you, you never see it. The sender gets a message back. So if you have some kind of technical understanding, you might know that this is an improbable situation. But if they were masquerading as a spam filter saying, is this message spam? Please let us know. And then those links are malicious to let them know if it's spam or not. This is something that may very well work on me. Yeah, it's interesting, too, looking at one of the messages they posted here that Mm -hmm. they cover a lot of ground on possible emails you'd want to have released. Right, yeah. There's one having to do with medical stuff. There's one having to do with payment authorization. There's one with a delivery. So they're kind of they're kind of covering all their bases around. here. Yeah, they're hitting all all the <laughs> yeah <laughs> all the typical uh, thing. Hey, you got delivery waiting. Hey, here's your medical records. Hey, right. we're waiting on your payment. Yeah, it's like three spam messages in one. What a value! Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> Which one do you want to release first? Yeah, it's a phishing attack with three variants. It's uh, they found a way to make it more efficient with one message. They can now hit you with three different things. Mm-hmm. I imagine that has some kind of increase in impact as well. Yeah, I would think so. All right. As always, we'll have the link in the show notes. Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. My favorite part of the show. Joe, our catch of the day this week comes to us courtesy of the website 419eater.com. This is a a group of folks. They have taken it upon themselves to do the service of trying to string along these scammers. They're scam baiting. They are scam baiting and they do it in a very entertaining way, but it illustrates some of the messages that they get. This is one going back to 2006. In this case, Joe, I'm going to be the person trying to do the scam and you can be the person who's stringing them along. Okay. All right, here we go. Puppy for sale. My name is Clement. I am from Barrytown, New York, but due to work presently, I was just been transferred about a couple of days for a missionary purpose in West Africa. Right now, I am still located in Republic of Benin, where I am carrying out my missionary assignment, and due to tight assignment, I found myself I don't have much time to take good care of my puppy like I used to, and so the environment that the puppy found herself in, Republic of Benin, is too harsh. Therefore, have decided to give out the puppy to a good caring person who would treat my puppy with a tender care and well family interaction. The puppy is well-breed, and the puppy has current vaccination, vet exams, health certificate, and one-year guarantee. The puppy has potty-trained, home-raised, and socialized for tremendous attitude, well and excellent temperamented. The public has super-trainability and people-pleasing personality. The puppy is given a high-learning and delight elegance of structure and well-dewormed. The dog has CKC, AKC, and FCI registered AM, offering the puppy out at $650 each, one, including the shipment, and I have a 
attack the pics of my puppy, and I will like attach the pic of mine self. I will like to hear from you as soon as possible. Thanks, and God bless. Now, the person trying to uh, do this scam attaches pictures of puppies. And they're adorable. They are adorable. Now, the person stringing them along uh, replies, and his reply goes like this. How much will it cost for you to kill the puppies and send me the fresh meat? That's terrible, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely terrible. It is awful. These are adorable puppies. I know, I know. (laughs) I should have read this first. (laughs) It it, it goes on. Oh, good. I do not kill puppy. I only sell due to I on a transfer live outside United States. That is why I want to sell out mine pet for a Christian person that will take her as a daughter. So are you willing to buy a living puppy? Thanks and remain blessed. I only deal in dead dogs. Sorry. It costs more to import them alive. I own an exotic food importation company specializing in Klingon foodstuffs. We usually pay between 2000 and 3000 per kilo of fresh dog meat, antelope meat, triple meat, and also mogwai meat. Thank you for your contact. I am sorry you cannot help me at this time. Mogwai meat. <laughs> for those who might be wondering what mogwai meat is, mogwai is the, the little gremlin. guy from Gremlins. Right. Yeah, the little cute little Gizmo. creature from Gizmo from Gremlins. It was also the the evil creatures from Gremlins. Those yeah. were also mogwai. Yeah. Thanks for that. We have dog meat and they are readily for sale, but I can still tell you the fellow worker that I have seen the person that is readily buy the meat, but it is too costly and it can be shipped to your country. That is if you are willing to pay for it. Reply as soon as possible. Thanks and remain blessed. So now they change their tune, huh? Well, they may not be on the hook for a live puppy, but they still want to get your money. Right. So the person stringing them along replies. Do you have dealers who also specialize in mogwai meat? I recently lost my usual supplier, and I'm in desperate need of a new reliable supplier. Typically for good quality imported mogwai meat, my company pays $2,700 per kilo. That is for smoked mogwai meat. I would be very interested in importing regular supplies if you are able to arrange this. Get back to me with more information and prices, if possible, and let me know a list of the different types of meat you can export to me. (laughs) And it it goes on from there. (laughs) We don't have time to do the whole thing, but uh, this person masterfully strings them along. Obviously, the the bad guys have no idea what mogwai meat is. They just want to get some kind of money. Right. From this person. They also uh, have no concept of pop culture references because he says he runs a Klingon meat emporium. <laughs> right. And then one of the meats he sells is Tribbles. Well, Klingons hate Tribbles. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, there you go. Maybe they like eating them. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so he, we should went... be, he should be asking to import gah. <laughs> okay. We went from live puppies to mogwai meat. Right. All, yeah. Yes. Oh, this is a great internet or what? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> it is a beautiful internet. All right. So... <laughs> That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Avi Solomon. He is Director of Information Technology for Rumberger, Kirk, and Caldwell. They are a litigation defense firm based in Orlando, Florida. And we are back, Joe. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Avi Solomon. He is Director of Information Technology for Rumberger, Kirk, and Caldwell. They are a litigation defense firm based in Orlando, Florida. We met him at the Know Before Conference at K Before Con. And uh, he came up to us and he said, we had a really interesting thing happen at our firm. And I think your listeners would benefit by hearing about it. And uh, we agree. So here's my interview with Avi Solomon. The story begins back in January. And what had happened, I came in sort of on the back end of the story, of course, because we don't necessarily find out about this in the beginning. 
And what ended up happening was one of the attorneys in my firm called up to me and said, we have a what I think is a problem because something isn't making sense in an email conversation. So I took a look at the attorney's emails and I took a look at our archive of inbound emails back and forth. And I really didn't see anything offhand technologically that jumped out at me and told me that there was any sort of problem. What was it that made the attorney bring this to your attention in the first place? Well, so that's what's so interesting. So she was having a conversation with opposing counsel and they were sort of winding their way to the settlement agreement, the ending part of the conversation as it went back and forth for days, even weeks. And the attorney on the other side kept trying to find a way for our attorney to engage in a financial transaction. We knew it was winding down, we were getting ready. And so could they do an electronic funds transfer? Could they do a money wiring? And it just so happens that the particulars of this case didn't really allow for that. And so ultimately, what was needed was a check to be cut. And when the address was put in for the check to be cut, it immediately set off an alarm to our attorney who looked at it and knowing a little bit about the firm she was dealing with, the address didn't quite make sense. And so that was really what was the most interesting piece because there's no technological defense. There's no filtration system that's going to pick up on something like that. I mean, that's really the epitome of a social engineering hack, if you will. And so when she saw that, that raised a red flag for her and she did what she's been trained to do. And this is really one of the most important pieces that I wanted to convey was how important regular training is, phishing training for the users so that they develop an awareness of what they're looking at. And so what she did, which is part of our training, is she picked up the phone and she called the attorney on the other side rather than respond in the email and asked him, why are you having us send the settlement in this direction? What's the purpose of that? To which he responded, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's mm. what sort of <laughs> unraveled this entire story. Well, and how far back did it go? Could you track at what point the bad folks injected themselves into the conversation? We weren't able to see how far back it can go. We know that it went back at least about a week because they had been monitoring it. But the, the reason we couldn't tell was because the compromise hadn't happened on our side. The compromise actually happened on the other firm side. And so somebody was monitoring that conversation. Now, whether they had control of an entire desktop or only control of their hosted email, we don't know. And I, I wasn't really permitted to dig that far deep into their environment. But through investigating the email headers and looking at the information, I was able to bring to their IT departments the important stuff to know about. And actually, because ultimately, the attorney is responsible for the safety of the data for their clients, I actually reached out to the attorney himself, spoke to him about it, and sort of as a funny footnote, when I told him what the issue was, and he was actually pretty technical, and he asked me if I would send the information his way, I told him I would, but not to his email because I can <laughs> prove it's compromised. Right, so, right. <laughs> so he actually, so he shared with me his home email address, and I packaged up the information for him. I highlighted the points that he needed to really care about and bring to his people and make sure that they were taking it very seriously because we could see where the problem was. I would guess at least a week, but it could go back weeks or months. I mean, how would anybody know until somebody slips up? Right. And they, they very well could have been biding their time waiting for some opportunity where this sort of financial exchange was likely to happen. 
And I'm sure that was the case because they didn't inject themselves into any part of the conversation up until it came to the settlement. And the settlement for you to know was a million dollars. I mean, that was Mm. a big settlement. And so right at the point where the discussion started about how to transfer the funds, that's when it started to get a little odd. And only through inspecting the email headers did we notice it. Interestingly enough, by the way, one of the big challenges was... Oftentimes in these type of email compromise attempts and the such, you can usually tell the language is poor, the usage is poor, etc. What was so intriguing here was that the party that injected themselves into the middle of this conversation actually did so well at mimicking the salutations, the signature blocks, even the style of writing of the attorneys that one of the attorneys said to me that had she read this later as part of a review process, she would not have known that she didn't write those emails. Hmm. Fascinating. Because it was, yeah, it was so similar to her own language, stylistic writing approach. And only afterwards, when we reviewed and looked at all of the emails to try to understand how could a person have detected this, a lay person have detected this type of email compromise, we only noticed two things that stood out and they were so minute that when I gave this presentation to other people and showed them what it was within my firm, because this was a a really good education moment for everybody in our organization. Nobody picked up on the two things that we noticed. One was that Hmm. in the middle of the conversation, the RE was missing in the reply. And that's because that was the first message that the injector started with in that conversation. The other one was as the conversation was advancing, their mail client used a different case handling of the letters RE than our mail client. And so there was a certain inconsistency. But that is so small that nobody would really pick up on that. Right. That's the kind of thing you notice when you're going through everything with a fine tooth comb. But in the, I don't know, the velocity of day to day business, who's looking for that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty on that for sure. Yeah. Now, I mean, it seems to me like the hero of the story here is the attorney who just had a funny feeling about something. But you say that a big part of that was training ahead of time. Absolutely. And when I went over to the attorney's office to congratulate her on what she had done, she said to me, it's the constant, repetitive, reiterative training that I hold them to that helped her look with a much more careful eye at something that would stand out. Normally, at the speed of email flow and negotiation and conversation, you don't really look and stop and think about those details. But training and repetitive training going through it. In our organization, we fish our employees randomly once a month, every employee from every level, no matter where they are in the standing from the head of the firm all the way to you know the, the most recent employee who's just come on board. Every mm-hmm. one of them gets fished regularly and then we score and we watch their results and then we remediate with them if they are not learning. And what a great story for you to to be able to take back to the organization that in this case, it seems like the training really paid off. Oh, absolutely. And our training vendor was very happy to hear about it. And our organization was very excited to distribute this information within the organization because what it meant was that everybody got to really understand a real life 
activity, action that happened, not just far off in the distance to somebody else, but to one of their peers, somebody who may sit in the office right next to them. So what are your recommendations for organizations comparable to yours, a law firm, a business like that? How do you get everybody on board that this is something that is an effective way to protect themselves? Well, I think case studies like this one help to show organizations the value of it. I think getting buy-in from the organization's management, whether it's a law firm or a corporation, that at the highest levels, they have to appreciate the risks that are associated with social engineering and lack of training. And if those people can be convinced that this is important, and it is, it truly is, then it can go a long way towards saving an organization a lot of heartache down the road. And I assembled a few takeaways from this entire story Mm. that I thought were very important, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's hear them. So first of all, of course, training, not enough can be said about that. The second is that considering email is pretty much the number one attack vector, at least in my experience, hardening email through technological means and training for social engineering are vital to protecting the organization. Number three, and in this case, it was very specific, making sure that your SPF, your DKIM, and your DMARC records are appropriate for email hygiene will go a long way towards ensuring that the emails that you're sending and receiving are verified and legitimate. The fourth item, which also is an interesting one, especially in this case, because systems or technologies that would detect anomalies wouldn't have picked it up, the idea that you should question even known good entities and known good parties. Just because you've had a conversation with somebody doesn't mean that every message is absolutely clean. And so therefore, when you're dealing with a very important activity, such as the transference of money, secretive business or personal information, or organizational management decisions that are not for public consumption, it's important to make sure that you verify the information. Anti-malware and phishing protection mechanisms won't help when you're dealing with the compromise of one party in the conversation. And I I think that's really important to understand. Oftentimes, I'm asked about making sure that email comes in no matter what from a certain party. And it's nice to be able to now look at managers in the organization and say, just because we've trusted them yesterday doesn't mean we get to trust them today. Right. And finally, the last piece that's important is to use another method of communication whenever there's something questionable. It's what I call the multi-factor authentication of a conversation. Hmm. And this was a key that this attorney did. She didn't just simply email back to the attorney and say, why would you want me to send the money there? Because she would probably get back a great answer as to why the money should be redirected into a criminal's hands. But she actually picked up the phone and spoke to the person. And that was, as I often talk about multi-factor authentication in the environment in general, this was a form of multi-factor authentication in a transference of funds. Joe, what do you think? That's one of the best interviews we've ever had on the show. (laughs) And I'm not just saying that. Avi is talking about something that actually happened. It's a success story. It's fantastic. It's not some esoteric thing. It's not some horrible thing where you feel oh my God, these guys are out a million dollars. They're not out a million dollars. The person who spotted this saw something wrong and said something. And she did the absolute right thing at the right time by calling the person, what Avi calls a multi-factor conversation <laughs> authentication. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I like Which that. I love that. She called the person before the money was sent, mm-hmm. right? And found out there's something terribly wrong. The actual technical red flags here were so small. The email headers were off. 
No lay user is ever going to check the email headers. They're just not going to do it. Mm -mm. They don't even know what they are. The typesetting on the RE for reply either missing or being a different case. Even an expert wouldn't see that. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to notice that. No. One of the key points here is they were so good at impersonating people. Yeah, isn't that that fascinating? This wasn't some broken English kind of thing. No, this was an expert. They were engaged with someone who had the ability to imitate someone's style of writing. And it was so good, somebody said that if I was reviewing this in a forensic manner, I would not have doubted I would have written these emails. That is a remarkable statement. Right. That's how good these things can get. Think about how close they were to getting a million dollars from the scammer's point of view. That's money well spent. Right. Absolutely. This is a fantastic story, a fantastic interview. What a great lesson to everybody. And uh, thanks to Avi for sharing it with us. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 